So we're talking about what lies ahead. That's been our series for now 13 uh, weeks. And we decided a few a month or so ago that periodically we would stop and give you the time to really answer questions and have a discussion and, and sort of process a lot that we've been uh, talking about. I uh, always like to remind you that, of course, at any time, you're free to raise your hand and ask questions when we're doing a Bible study because that's important. Um, but I have just found that sometimes I tend to get talking fast and get going and people may feel uncomfortable kind of putting the brakes on. So uh, I want you to feel comfortable to do that by all means. But we decided we'd set aside some dedicated times every few weeks where we can uh, do that and got great feedback from that and a great uh, response. And so uh, we want to do that again uh, today. Did want to remind those that are watching by video uh, that uh, we have a book that goes along with this study. It's a little more comprehensive. Uh, it's 350 pages. I forget how many chapters. 16, I think, with questions at, questions at the end of each chapter, charts, graphs, and things. Many of you have already picked that up here. It's at the table at the back if you'd like. But if you're watching online, you can go to the Not By Works website, which you see there on the screen, and pick one up from our online store. We'll ship it to you. The uh, discount code for that is WLA, and that'll give you 25% off. But to kind of stimulate our thinking a little bit this morning for the Q&A, I just want to put up a broad strokes review of all that we've gone through so far. Now, I don't have all 13 session titles listed there because some of these topics have spanned a couple of sessions or more. But the rough outline that we followed is we started out by asking why, why should we study the end times? And we talked about how important that is, that one-third of the Bible is prophecy and half of that has yet to be fulfilled, and the study of Bible prophecy closes the loop on God's plan of the ages. It reminds us that He's a covenant-keeping God. It gives us something to look forward to. It tells us the end of the story, and there are many other uh, reasons uh, to study the end times. Then we we started, like any good study on what lies uh, on the end times should, we started with Genesis. Many people instinctively think, let's start with Revelation when we're going to study the end times. But you have to see the Bible in context and see God's plan of the ages in context. So we went all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and we, uh, we looked at the, the first earliest reference in the Bible to uh, the gospel uh, called the Protevangelium in Genesis 3.15 when God promised that ultimately the seed of the woman, capital S, Jesus Christ, would defeat the enemy, Satan. And uh, so that's another reason to study the end times is because it shows us how this victory <coughs> ultimately comes to fruition. Now, the victory's already been won. We know that at the cross when Christ uh, rose from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave. Uh, but in God's sovereign timetable, he hasn't completely uh, banished Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet and all unbelievers to the lake of fire uh, permanently. And so we've got you know, a lot of things that have to happen in fulfillment of prophecy until then. So we looked at God's kingdom promise, went all the way back to his promise to Abraham, his promise to King David, his reiteration of those promises throughout the prophets of old. We looked at how that promise was continued uh, to be spoken of in Jesus' day, and uh, even on the day that he ascended to be at the right hand of the throne of God after the resurrection. He promised he would return and culminate the promised kingdom. We looked at God's covenant program behind the kingdom that undergirds and guarantees the kingdom. And then uh, looking at the Bible in its plain, normal, literal sense, we were able to discern that there is a clear distinction between God's plan for the church and God's plan for Israel. 
And we, had, we do not have any grammatical or contextual justification for spiritualizing Israel and making the church the replacement for Israel and, and seeing God's plan of the ages as involving only one people of God. There are multiple groups throughout human history that God has focused on, the church, the Israel, the nations, and so forth. Individuals of any uh, nationality or group all have to come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ the same way, by faith, but God has a different role, a different purpose for each of those groups uh, to play uh, throughout the ages. And so it's very important to let the Scripture speak in its plain, normal sense and to understand that we are living in the church age today. We have certain purposes and uh, reasons for existence, and we talked about those. Uh, but ultimately, the Lord's going to call the church home to rescue us before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath. And then the spotlight will shift once again to Israel. And God's not through with Israel. National Israel, geographic Israel, has a role to play, a central role to play, we might say, in God's end times plan. And then we spent several weeks looking at the rapture. Um, this always engenders the most discussion and the most feedback from the podcasts and videos, emails and stuff, because you know, a lot of people, unfortunately, have been wrongly taught that the rapture is not true, that the Bible doesn't teach the rapture. And we showed very plainly how the Bible certainly does teach the rapture. The term is used in Scripture in the original Greek, harpazo, and in the Latin translation of that word, rapire. And it's a biblical teaching uh, that is the blessed hope, what we in this present age look forward to. We, we emphasize that the rapture is not does not teach that somehow we in the church age are guaranteed to not have any troubles or be rescued before things get really bad. That's never been the teaching of the rapture. It's certainly not the testimony of Scripture. And more, more, moreover, we've seen through 2,000 years of church history that many believers have suffered immense persecution and martyrdom for the cause of Christ. So the rapture doesn't promise that all will be well with us and it won't get bad until after he gets us out of here. The rapture simply is the promise of God that before that final seven-year period that we just talked about last week, the 70th week of Daniel or that final seven years of the 490-year plan, before that kicks into gear, God will rescue us because he has not appointed the church to suffer wrath. And uh, so that's what the rapture is all about. And then we talked about Daniel 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's statue, Daniel 7 with Daniel's vision of the beasts, and how both of those correlate uh, to uh, God's plan of the kingdoms on earth under Gentile rule, uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then ultimately a revival of that Roman Empire uh, under the leadership of the future man of sin, the son of perdition, that man that the Bible calls the Antichrist. And that brought us up to last week where we looked at that famous passage in Daniel 9 where we see that God's promises are fulfilled precisely to the day just as they said they would be, which should give us great hope and great comfort in all of the other promises of Scripture. So with that sort of background, let me put up just a generic uh, chart here on the screen to kind of give us something uh, to look at, and I'll open the floor and see what questions you might have uh, about anything related to what we've talked about so far, or anything else for that matter. If I don't know the answer to something, I'll just make one up. So just <laughs> feel free to ask any question. Yes, sir. I would like to know if, if during the millennium, is Jesus going to basically 
do a bunch of miracles to turn the whole world good, or is he going to do it slowly by, by basically telling us how to fix it, you know? So the question is, during the millennium, so you see on the screen there at the far right in purple, see if the color transcended there, yes. Uh, so in purple you see the Messianic kingdom, and the first thousand years of that we refer to as the millennium. Sometimes people use the phrase millennial kingdom, which is fine. I've kind of gotten away from that terminology because it tends to imply that the kingdom is only a thousand years, but the testimony of Scripture is that the kingdom is eternal. When Christ takes the throne, he will reign forever and ever, not just for a thousand years. The first thousand years, however, are unique because they take place on the old heaven and the old earth, uh, and then it will, God will destroy the old heavens and the old earth once and for all, recreate them in sinless perfection, and the Bible has thus, and human history has thus, come full circle back to a pre-fall Edenic state. So your question is about the millennium. And so let me clarify a couple of things. You asked, um, I think you're sitting close enough that it picked up on the mic, but just to be sure, is Jesus going to sort of slowly make all things better, or will it happen instantaneously is that kind of the idea is is he going to basically do it by a bunch of miracles or by leading us in how to you know fix it you know yeah so when jesus comes back and you see it in the in the right arrow pointing down over there on the on the far right that's the long-awaited return of christ as promised in scripture there, according to Daniel chapter 12, there's a 75-day interval that Daniel doesn't explicitly tell us what exactly goes on in those 75 days. We could speculate that it's essentially to sort of recover and clean up the bloodshed and disaster from the seven-year tribulation when there's been you know, billions of deaths and de- devastation and sea turning to blood and you know, all kinds of stuff. But in any event, the official commencement of the kingdom is 75 days later, and it will begin with a uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at that point, uh, when Christ comes back and takes the throne, all things are already under his control, and he is already reigning in perfect righteousness with a rod of, of iron and perfect justice. So it's not like there will need to be a bunch of uh, problems dealt with. The unique thing about the millennium is that with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords on the throne, there will be no injustice. There will be no accidental death. There will be no you know, innocent, falsely uh, imprisoned or guilty getting off scot-free because Jesus, God in the flesh, will actually be ruling. There will be no tr- jury trials. There will be no need for any of that because Jesus Christ will be the one making the decisions. Moreover, it's important to recognize that at the start of the millennium, we will see only believers on the earth, right? Because what happens when Christ comes back? Matthew 25. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats, and to the goats, unbelievers, he's going to say, depart from me into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. To the sheep, the believers, he's going to say, come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. So at the beginning of the kingdom, you've got all Old Testament saints coming back with Christ, Daniel 12 and Isaiah 26. You've got believers that were raptured and resurrected seven years prior, or at least seven years prior, coming back with Christ, Revelation 19. So those are groups that are believers, but they're in their glorified bodies. 
But there will also be another group of believers who survive the tribulation in their physical form. Remember Jesus said, those who endure, that is survive until the end, will be delivered into the kingdom, Matthew 24, 14. So, uh, or 24, 13. So those believers in their physical mortal bodies that are alive to populate the kingdom will already be believers. And uh, this may get a little bit more detailed than what we have time to flesh out here, but uh, I believe, based on Isaiah 65 and several other passages, that the new covenant, this this kingdom program of God, this covenant promise of God that goes all the way back to, to Genesis 12, will be fully inaugurated at the second coming. And according to uh, uh, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, when the new covenant is enforced, believers won't sin. So I don't think there will be any sin in the kingdom from believers. So that means initially, at the start of the kingdom, there's not going to be any injustices or sin or anything to clean up or fix or miracles to do to convince anybody. As time goes on, when those people and those believers in their mortal bodies procreate and children are born, everyone born in the kingdom, like everyone born since Adam, is going to be born dead in his or her trespasses and sins and will thus need to be born again. And so as they get older and reach the age of being able to understand sin and salvation and and what Christ did for us on the cross, some of those will trust in Christ and be saved, some won't. And over the thousand years, as you can, you know, if you can picture it, the population grows and there will be more and more unbelievers mixed in with believers. And at that time, of course, unbelievers who are not born again and not under the new covenant blessings will sin. And uh, they will be receiving the consequences of, the, of that sin. But it won't be something that Jesus uh, has to do a lot of miracles per se to convince because he's, he's in charge. He's ruling. The miracles that we saw, for example, during his life in earthly ministry, and the Old Testament predicted this, were to validate who he was. He won't need validation because he's in charge. He, he's, this is the culmination. He's, thus saith the Lord, and he rules with, with righteousness. Yeah. I was going to say... I wasn't, I wasn't talking about to convince people. I'm saying because the Antichrist probably made a, a pretty big ruin of the earth. Not, I'm not saying to convince anyone. So you're saying like supernatural events to fix the, the geographic and mm-hmm. physical problems, the, the devastation? Mm-hmm. Or is he yeah, going to have... That's a good question. That's a good question. <laughs> That's a great question. I, I, honestly, I've never contemplated that, or if I have, it was so long ago I forgot, or... Um, <laughs> Uh, I would I before I answer uh, emphatically, I'd want to kind of search the scriptures a little bit to see if any of the Old Testament passages that speak of the kingdom speak in terms of miraculous uh, restoration. Um, so I don't really know, but clearly he is going to super intend over the re- restoration of the land. We know that. For example, the Millennial Temple is going to be massive, much bigger than any of the prior temples, certainly bigger than the Antichrist Temple. The geographic boundaries, we're going to get to this, by the way, down the road in our study. I'm going to show you all kinds of characteristics of the Millennium from Scripture. I'm just trying to think, does anybody else think of a passage that explicitly speaks of Jesus miraculously doing some of these restoration work or... In terms of the land and well, it's certainly be in concert with his character if he did. Absolutely, uh, amen, but amen. Just a, qu- a quick clarification for um, on the 
who will procreate during that time? Uh, if the believers are already in their, um, you know, yeah, uh, in their immortal bodies. Right. So as I said, you've got three groups of believers right. at the start of the millennium. You've got Old Testament saints in their glorified bodies coming back and inhabiting the kingdom. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, uh, Isaiah 26.3 talks about this, uh, and uh, Daniel 12 talks about this. Then you've got church-age believers who were raptured at least seven years earlier, probably a little more than that, and coming back with Christ in their glorified bodies as well. So they're ruling and reigning, and they're serving and doing the things that's promised blessings for the church. But neither of those two groups can procreate because they're in their glorified bodies. But the third group of believers that will inhabit the kingdom are those who survive the tribulation. As I mentioned, Matthew 24, 13, he who endures to the end will be delivered into the kingdom uh, and are in their physical bodies and the ones to whom Jesus says, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. It's that group still in their physical bodies that will procreate. And I believe that so, so they're all Christians. The only physical belie only believers in their physical bodies on earth at the start of the kingdom are believers. But when they have children, those children will be born dead in their trespasses and sins, and like every human being, need to have personal faith in Jesus Christ to be born again. Some will, some won't. And so over time, you will have quite a contingent of unbelievers who have grown up and become adults. And, in, in, and indeed, by the end of the thousand years... Uh, uh, there will be enough for Satan when he's released from prison to harness a great army for this final battle of Gog and Magog that the Bible talks about. So, uh, And also remember, because Christ is on the throne and we don't have accidental death, we have perfect justice, the Bible tells us that people will live longer. So there's a longevity of life is restored. In fact, Isaiah tells us that you know, if someone dies at the age of 100, they're going to be considered dying like an infant. <laughs> Right? Yeah. When will the uh, millennial, or we'll call it the millennial saints, uh, who are not church-age saints, not Old Testament saints, when will they get their glorified bodies? So you, I leave it to you to ask the question <laughs> I was... So, so, th thank you. Th thank you. So uh, well, I think we're, we're all out of time. Um, no, that's a very good question. And there are some things the Bible is silent on. Let me repeat the question. That is... You're talking about uh, people who either, there's actually two, people who get saved during the millennium, which means they were born in the millennium, uh, and those who are in their physical bodies at the start of the kingdom, already believers. So the question is, when do they get their glorified body? Um, I've actually written a, a journal article about this. It's called Death in the Millennium. Um, not anticipating... Uh, this question, and indeed, in uh, spending hours in prayer hoping it wouldn't come up, I did not uh, print any of those. But um, I, if if I think about it, I'll print some for next week. Or if you email me, I can send you a link to that article. But the short answer is, what do we know for sure? We know for sure that ultimately, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. That when all things are made new, the Bible's come full circle. The old sin-stricken earth is destroyed everyone will be in their glorified body. We don't know exactly when millennial believers will get that. We can speculate. All we know for sure is they will get it. The Bible tells us explicitly when church-age saints will get it, and it tells us explicitly when Old Testament saints will at the second coming. 
But we just don't have enough information. Apparently, God didn't feel like that was something we needed to know the timing of. Yeah? What will a glorified body look like? So, you know, we don't have um, a picture, obviously. Uh, you know, um, obviously Jesus is a, as a full human being, resurrected, and he was recognizable. He, people knew who he was. The disciples recognized him. Um, it would be, I, I think sometimes we overplay the comparison there because obviously what makes him unique is not only was he 100% man, he was 100% God, and we're not. So uh, I don't want to stretch the comparison too much, um, but we just know that it's going to be, that, that we will have our unique identity. That Remember, your identity as a human being is associated with the immaterial part of you, not the physical part of you. I could chop off my arm and I'm still J.B. Hickson, right? I can get old and fat and, 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 and decrepit, but I'm still J.B. Hickson. This is a tent in which we live. So um, since none of us have ever been to heaven, we don't know the specifics, but I'll recognize you. You know, there's Suzanne, look at you, you know. And uh, you'll say, there's JB, man, you look a lot better. You know, and, uh, and so, uh, but we, we won't have flesh and blood, we won't have bones, we won't have anything that's under the curse of sin that can be uh, messed up over time. So, yes, John. Well, just, uh, in response to her question uh, from Philippians 3.21, uh, we eagerly await from there the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Yeah, yeah. So there is that likeness. Yeah, That's in the humanness, happened. yeah. I think to the extent while he was still on earth, we got a glimpse of his glory, glorified physical body. It will, we will share in a glorified physical body too. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, Romans 8 talks about how we're groaning, our bodies themselves groan, longing for that. Yeah. Can you clarify or correct maybe some misperceptions I have? Um, I totally understand the doctrine of imminency around the rapture. Um, and I sort of grew up hearing one of two things. Only God the Father knows the day and the hour. Mm -hmm. Or we're waiting for that last Gentile to get saved. Mm -hmm. So is it time-bound or person-bound? It's both. Um, so they're not mutually exclusive. The times of the Gentiles are what we're in now. And when God uh, decides it's in his sovereign plan that it's time for the times of the Gentiles to be over and Israel is to once again be in charge of the earth, ultimately through the ultimate seed of Abraham, Jesus, um, then that's going to be that day, that moment. So the they're not, I, don't see a, I don't see a conflict there. The, the issue isn't that God has, because God's outside of time, space, and matter. Right. So God's not up in his office looking at his calendar, and there's a big red circle over this day and this hour, and as soon as we get there, you know, confetti flies and everything, and boom, that happens. He doesn't function that way. So he's, he does know the day and the time, but uh, it's, that's not, he's not bound by that. Does that make sense? It does. Right. So... Um, so then I know we've had several other hands here. Yes. I just wanted a refresher. Um, there's three different judgments. The 
and just correct me when I mess up, but there's one, the Bema judgment happens at the rapture, right? And then we've got the, the, the sheep and goat judgment that happens right before the millennium? At the second coming. Uh-huh. And then the great white throne judgment, which happens between the millennium and the eternal state. Is that right? What is the great Correct. white? Correct, yes. And then, and then in those different stages, hell is the eternal punishment has some changes as well, right? Sure, yeah. So, because I know that this, the devil gets transferred, it just gets a little bit confusing. I just wanted to make sure I had it straight in my mind, and so does, so does you know, to be, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Right. What, what does the morphing of, of, um, you know, heavenly states and, and, Punishment. What does that look like through those different judgments and through the different? So there are actually more than just those three judgments. And uh, in my chart book, uh, and we'll get to this. I think I might have even shown it previously already. So at least once. What's what I call the eschatological judgments, the yet future judgments. So ones that you didn't mention would be the judgment of the beast and the false prophet, right. the antichrist and the second in command, the judgment of Satan. Right. So. Um, but the, the more to the point of your question, we, we use the phrase, you know, go to heaven when you die, really as a metonym for the eternal dwelling place of the redeemed. We, and I get into this a little bit in a, in a subsection of my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong. The ultimate dwelling place of the redeemed is the new heavens and the new earth, not just heaven. Right? The new heavens and the new earth when Christ makes all things new, Revelation 21. But it's, it's, it's somewhat inconsequential at this point to try to break down the actual names and titles of you know, Sheol and Hades and Paradise and Abraham's bosom and hell and the lake of fire and the everlasting fire. Is that the same thing as the lake of fire? I mean, we can do that and I've done that. But what you hit on is the key. For a believer... The minute you die, you go into the presence of the Lord, period. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we see that in Luke 16 as well with Lazarus. So, um, and conversely, for an unbeliever who dies, they go immediately to a place of torment. Again, Luke 16. Um, you are correct that in this time, space, and matter continuum right now that we call creation, that it's, it's not ultimately... Because even that has to be destroyed. God, God destroys everything. I was looking in Second Peter here, and he says, um, The day of the Lord will come as a... This is Second Peter 3, uh, 10. Uh, and remember, this is the same passage we looked at previously about his promise. So let's pick up the context in verse 7. Second Peter 3, 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget one thing. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. That's just a metaphor, specifically a simile, using like or as, just basically reminding us that God is not bound by time, space, and matter. This is not giving a definition of the word day. Some people try to point to this verse in suggesting that the earth is millions and millions of years old because it wasn't six 24-hour days, you know. Well, you can't just arbitrarily pick a 
simile that has nothing to do with that and assign meaning to it. Otherwise, we could do the same thing with the walls of Jericho. Maybe the children of Israel walked around Jericho seven million years. I don't know. Same word, right? Uh, so there's just no justification for that. But in the context, it's saying that you know God's not. Even though it may seem like it's been a long time, God's got this. His promise is secure. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. This gets to your kind of question about God's patience with wanting to see, give as much time as possible for people to change their mind about Christ and come to faith in, alone in Christ. Uh, but then he says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So wherever uh, the dwelling place right now at this moment of the lost is, we know it's in torment, but we know it's not going to ultimately be the same place. He's got the lake of fire reserved for them. And then similarly for believers, we know that we're that our loved ones who know the Lord that have died are with the Lord in heaven, enjoying His fellowship, enjoying fellowship with other believers who've gone before them. Uh, and we know they'll come back if they died in our age, come back with Christ at the rapture. Ones that died prior to the church age will come back some seven years later at the second coming. And, um, uh, but we know that they're not, that that actual place, you know, where they are, is ultimately going to be the new heavens and the new earth. So yeah, there is some sort of, you know, I, I don't know how God's going to do that. He's God. He's not subject to Again, time, space, and matter. So it's not like he has to say, all right, guys, let's vacate you know, Abraham's bosom. I want you all to go over here and get in this holding tank while I destroy everything, and then I'll pull you out of the holding tank and put... I mean, it's all, boom, with a word, he can do it. So, But we do need to remember, as you correctly brought up, that, that the ultimate dwelling place of the redeemed is the new heavens and new earth. The ultimate dwelling place of the lost is the lake of fire, the eternal lake of fire, which involves eternal torment, not annihilationism. Yes, sir. I would like to know if you're if you're absent from the body and then you're present with the Lord. What what about the the dead in Christ rising at the rapture? Does their spirit go into their body again, and then their body gets resurrected? Just yeah. So. That's a gr another good question, and um, so we talked about this uh, uh, somewhat with our teaching on the rapture, this, so several weeks on the rapture, but he's referring to 1 Thessalonians 4, when the, at the description and teaching about the rapture that Paul gives, which is really the first comprehensive teaching under the inspiration of the Spirit about this doctrine of the rapture, that the way it will happen is the dead in Christ, meaning dead believers, those who've already died, whose soul is in heaven with the Lord, that their bodies will rise first. And then those of us that have not experienced death but are still alive, and we will be changed, which is what Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 15. So there's two terms that we need to make sure we understand as it relates to the, the, the procuring of our glorified bodies. Translation and resurrection. You can't resurrect if you're not dead. But you still have to take this mortal, physical body sold under sin and be transformed into a glorified body like the Philippians passage that Pastor John read. That's called translation, and that's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we shall not all sleep. 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's 51 or 53. Let me look at it. 
because I want to make sure for posterity. I mean, if I die today, I don't want the last thing I recorded to be a wrong passage. First uh, Corinthians 15. Yes, 51. Uh, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Someone's pointed out that's a good motto for the church nursery. <laughs> shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's not what it's talking about. Sleep there is a euphemism for death. So he's saying not everyone's going to die. But we all will be changed. This mortal must put on immortality. This corruptible must put on incorruption. Why? Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. So back to your question. For those believers who have died, uh, it's not necessarily the case that all of them in this present age, their bodies are in the grave, right? Some have been cremated. Some were lost and never found. You know, hiking accidents, avalanches, shipwrecks. Um, you know, some were buried, embalmed and buried. So wherever, but, but, but the very nature of matter, of material, is that though, it, though the visible nature of it might deteriorate to the point where it looks like it's gone, the atoms, the smallest atoms are still there. And what the Bible is saying is that believers who have died in the Lord at the rapture, God will reconstitute the very atoms of their physical being, wherever they are, in the grave, burned up at sea, you know, wherever, and transform it into a glorified body that will then enter the kingdom. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Does that answer the question? I meant no, it doesn't completely make sense. By yes, he means no. He does that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm picturing in my mind, so let's say... Peter, he died 2,000 years ago, right? Then he went, he, did, he turned into some dirt, and then his spirit went up to heaven, and then all of the atoms went back together to make his body, and then his spirit went back into his body, and then he was resurrected again. Is that sort of how it would work? Well, I'm not sure I can get that granular with it. Um, it sort of happens at, at a moment. You know, in time, and, and Paul describes that as a twinkling of an eye, which is like the blink of an eye. So I'm not sure whether the reconstitution of the physical aspects of our body happens and then we, you know, enter that body after it's glorified or whether it all, but, but it all kind of happens in the twinkling of an eye there. Sorry, I'm, I know that's very unsatisfying. But uh, I—that's the best I—that's the best I can do. Yes. Yeah. Let me start off with why didn't you answer his question? <laughs> <laughs> because he's too smart for me. <laughs> the idea that when we're absent from the body and we're with the Lord, at that point, is our soul existing outside the space and time if we're with the Lord? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 God created time, space, and matter. And so he exists outside of them, which is one of the reasons we read those beautiful passages like Romans 11, where it's, it's how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. We, we can't even, we think linearly. <laughs> but yeah, if we're with the Lord, we're outside of this realm, you know. So, yes. I, I was thinking about, um, I had never heard that during the millennium, and you're saying that, 
um, you know, the believers, not the ones who were saved in the tribulation, that they would have their glorified bodies and that they would not be um, able to procreate. But then I, I, I was thinking as you were talking about like the Nephilim, you know, you always think about, well, gosh, how are they able to, you know, see the, the daughters of men? And right, Genesis suppose, 6. So is that absolute that they, um, you know, the Bible says that during the millennium, those those believers, not the ones from the tribulation, that they would not be able to procreate? We're, we're, well, let's maybe make sure I clarify because... I've been known in the recent past to misunderstand questions. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, I want to make sure I understand who we're talking about. When you talk about the ones from the tribulation, remember there will be a great multitude saved in the tribulation, as you referenced. Yeah. Some of those will die, Yeah. be martyred. Okay. So they're going to be in the millennium just like Old Testament saints in their glorified bodies. Right, right. But the ones who survive to the end of the tribulation without dying they will be in the millennium believers in their physical flesh and blood bodies. Is that who you're talking about? Right, exactly. So they'll be able to so procreate. Be able to, oh, absolutely. The ones with the resurrected bodies, no. you're saying they will not. And the Bible specifically says that. Yes, because Jesus said that there's neither marriage nor given in marriage in heaven, uh, but we're like angels. Doesn't mean that we are angels. Like, again, we were talking about similes before church here. It's a simile, but the, the comparison there is that just as angels do not procreate, they are static in number. He created them, and there's not been any additions or subtractions. They don't die. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, in heaven, we won't be procreate because our procreation is a function of this earth. God created Adam and even said, you know, fill the earth, replenish the earth. Um, so, so, no, the glorified saints in the kingdom, whether Old Testament saints or raptured church-age saints or, you know, people that got saved but killed during the tribulation, they won't procreate. But those in their physical bodies will procreate. Procreation is, by definition, a factor of physical bodies. Okay. I, I, I guess maybe I wasn't viewing... Yeah, I know in heaven it said that. Yeah. But I guess I was, I was separating the millennium from heaven. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, so... It, you're right to separate it because it's not heaven, but the nature of our bodies doesn't change between the millennium and heaven. It's once you're in your glorified body, that's your eternal state, mm -hmm. if you will. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. but you know when I initially said that about the Nephilim, yeah, that's why I was always confused about how angels would be able to procreate, you know, fallen angels, right. with with human beings. It's a spiritual battle. I mean, that's another subject for a. Uh, you know, another Jesus. day, which I would love to talk about, and we've talked about it a lot, and yeah. and I've written about it. Um, but what happened there in Genesis six is a is a spiritual, I mean, seriously bizarre thing. It's not normative. Mm -hmm. um, it does certainly doesn't connect to anything related to glorified bodies. It's, it should not be assumed that because demons left their proper domain and cohabited with women and produced a race of hybrids, as mm -hmm. the Bible teaches, in the Old and New Testaments, by the way, that that means that people in their glorified bodies can procreate. Mm -hmm. That would be a misapplication of that. With great trepidation... Well, I, I see a hand. Yes, sir. <laughs> I want to take us back to man's linear progression here for a minute. Okay. Um, in my mind, the next major physical thing that would direct us to, hey, we're, 
we're getting close to the tribulation, the end times period, would be the rebuilding of the temple. And then, if that's true, then does the temple need to be rebuilt exactly where it sat before? Or will it be rebuilt? Can it be rebuilt anywhere in Jerusalem? Yeah. And it's got to be built in Jerusalem, obviously. Yeah, so I'm really glad you asked that question, Ken. Um, just to kind of nuance it a little bit. Uh, so the question, I think you have a loud enough voice everybody heard, is does the temple have to be rebuilt prior to, what did you say? And then on the same spot was the second part of that. Right, the second part was the same spot. But is the temple the next, the rebuilding of the temple, kind of the next major physical happening that says, okay, we're getting now... Closer and closer and closer to yeah. the end time. So is it the next major physical happening that uh, means that we could be getting closer? So, again, the rapture is a signless event, meaning nothing has, has to happen before that. But it is appropriate to look at geopolitical events and sort of see the stage being set. Uh, oh my goodness, it's 947. Um, I, I wish we could do this for three hours. But um, so, you know, when we see the stage being set for events that are going to take place in the end times after the rapture, it's natural for us to think, wow, we could be getting close. Now, I think you agree, and I'm just stating the obvious, that hypothetically, even if the temple were be, it could still be another 500 years. But, but clearly, it seems like a lot of things are coming together. And if you ask me to speculate, not point to scripture, but speculate, I'd say, yeah, I think we're getting close. But one thing about the temple that we need to really remember is that the temple that is being talked about now is Satan's temple. It is not the temple of our Lord. It's the one that the Antichrist is going to take up residence in and declare himself to be God and rule the world from. So, you know, the temple that Christ will reign from is the millennial temple described in Ezekiel 40 to 48, and it's a different temple altogether. So, you know, a lot of people, I think, miss that fact and get all excited because the temple now, if we're, if we're excited because we see talk of a temple being rebuilt, and by that we mean, well, that means events of the tribulation could be right around the corner. That's fine. That's a good, healthy approach to understanding prophecy. But if we're excited because we think this is Christ's temple, we've kind of misunderstood. Um, so yeah, I think, I don't know if I would call it exactly the next physical happening per se, because I think there are a lot of things that could happen. Uh, by the way, we might be in a one world system before the rapture. The Bible never says the Antichrist inaugurates the one world system. It just says he takes the reins of it. So if the Lord tarries his coming, we may all be under a one-world system prior to the rapture. And America certainly could be long gone prior to the rapture. You know, for centuries, uh, the people have taught, or let's say at least since the mid-1800s, people have, uh, who believe the Bible in its literal grammatical historical uh, approach have taught that, or thought that and taught, that the, the rapture will be the thing that is the undoing for America, that America will just be obliterated because of the rapture. That still may be the case. I don't know. We don't have any way to know for sure. But as I look around us at what's happening in our country, it's quite possible that our country could be long gone before the rapture. And, uh, and that would be certainly in keeping with history. Most nations, we've already outlived our, you know, 
you know, from a from a historic perspective of the average length of nations, we are you know 112 years old and in a nursing home. <laughs> so that that's that's where America is. And then you look at some of the cultural and social and moral things happening, and you think, wow, it's we're gonna you know we're gonna fall. So uh, we're we are out of time, but I didn't want to cut you off. So do you have one last question? Yeah, I'm so for the believers in the tribulation and such, how do they, when do they get their rewards? Do they get their rewards like immediately, like once they do a good deed and such? Well, that's or, a good question. You know, the there Bible... There is a Bema judgment after the rapture. The, there is the, the Bema judgment, Bema meaning judgment seat, is a special blessing for believers of the church age only. The, the Old Testament never speaks of rewards for that, at least at a judgment of that nature, and so, likewise for the tribulation believers. So we don't know the answer to that, but they, you know, the Bema judgment is, is a place where church age believers are rewarded for their faithfulness, Luke 19 and 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, many, many passages speak of the rewards that we will get, and most of those rewards are positions of service. I have a whole chapter on that and what lies ahead, and I actually outline 20-something specific rewards that are mentioned and 20-something specific rewardable acts that are mentioned, but that's just for the church age. Well, we'll do this again, I promise, uh, but next week, let's come back and we'll pick up with the next uh, subject that we want to talk about in this series of uh, What Lies Ahead. Good job, Jim. All right. <laughs> Feel like you're